there are few things in Scripture that have a tendency these days to create such volatile reactions as a passage that we will read today. God gets very specific with his instructions, providing some rules that each gender ought to pay careful attention to. Here's the title of my message this morning, Getting Down with His and Hers. Now, we will need as much time as possible to explain this text, so therefore, let's go to it and read it, acknowledging that even texts such as these are given for our spiritual edification and for building up of God's people. I encourage you to open scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We will read from verse 8 to 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 1029. As you're turning there, let me remind you that we are in our series of the book of 1 Timothy, a series entitled God's House, God's Rules. It's God's house. God, makes to get, God gets to make the rules. And today we are going to talk about some specific things, some overly specific things. Let's hear God's word. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace to guide us, because we will certainly need it. Let's do so. Lord, we confess that we need your grace at all times. But especially now as we are about to listen to what your word has to say to us regarding our roles and responsibilities in the church, we ask that you give us a double portion of your spirit so you may enlighten the eyes of our minds on how you design men and women to function as members of your household. We pray these things, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. I did not hear many amens after the passage. I wonder why. Well, the text we read is so weighty and has become so controversial in some Christian circles that I decided last night to divide the sermon in two parts. There's too much to cover in one sermon. So for those of you who are watching and keeping the sermon cards in, in, the, in, the, in the pews, you may see uh, an outline of what we're preaching at Park Hills here for the next two, three months. Starting with next week, it, we will be a, a week off of that. So that's just a clarification on what we're doing. There's too much to cover. And I do want to make sure that we cover this well 
with time to explain because these things can so easily be misunderstood. And therefore, I have decided to take more time and work through this passage. We will focus today on God's instructions to men regarding the manner of their prayer and to women regarding the manner of their clothing choices. We will leave for next week the teaching on submissiveness, on gender roles in the church, and on salvation through childbirth. We will leave all that for next week. Friends, God cares how men and women do certain things in his house. Now, let me ask you, what do you think scores high on God's prior list of things which he cared for deeply in how we do them? In God's list of things that he cares for very deeply of how they should be done, which things do you think score pretty high on that list? Well, it wasn't music. It wasn't outreach. It was prayer. And clothing. Prayer and clothing scored pretty high on God's list. So much so that Paul finds it important to address believers in the church in Ephesus or to address Timothy how to pastor and shepherd the believers in the church in Ephesus. So friends, when God addresses each gender separately, God spoke to them about these two issues, about prayer and about clothing. Let's look at each of these separately. Getting down with his stuff. Getting down with his stuff. God has a word to share specifically with the men. Men, I want you to be extra careful, extra attentive. But ladies, it's, don't think that you can check out. Because this stuff in some ways also applies to all Christians. But specifically for men. I wonder why. Let's look. After speaking to Timothy about the responsibility of the entire church to pray, as we have seen two weeks ago when we studied the first seven verses of chapter 2, now in verse 8, Paul turns his attention to speak to the men in the church. And he continues the theme of prayer, which he addressed earlier. It is not enough that Paul instructed all people everywhere to pray, as he did in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now he has a word of instruction to men about how they should pray. Look at verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. A caution here, this is not to say that only men have the responsibility to pray. Women do also. All people have this responsibility. Yet there are certain behaviors and attitudes which men especially need to watch for as they engage in prayer. The language of lifting up holy hands speaks not so much to our posture in prayer, but to our entire life, spiritual, physical, and moral. If we look closely at Paul's imagery, it seems that what is important in, in prayer is not just the act of praying, but the quality of life in the person that prays. It's not just about lifting up hands in prayer. The emphasis that Paul brings here is lifting up holy hands in prayer. In other words, this passage critiques the impression some people 
may have today, some Christians may have today, who say, I'm fine spiritually as long as I engage in prayer. Now, they may not actually say it that way, but here's how they, the, the conversation typically goes. How are you doing spiritually? Oh, great. Oh, really? Tell me what's great. What does that mean for you? Oh, you know, I try to pray once in a while. I try to pray once a day before I go to bed. Oh, great. I'm so glad you're doing well spiritually. Check. That is not the way Scripture encourages us to think about prayer and about spiritual well-being. Now, it's a great encouragement that we're committed to prayer, but we should be committed to a reality even greater than prayer, namely to be a reflection of God's image, of God's holiness as we pray. So that everything we do with our lives, including the act of praying, may be done with a radiance of His holiness reflecting in our lives, reflecting our hands. Man, as you think about your prayer life, or about your spiritual life in general, are you pursuing holy hands? I'm not asking you if you're washing your hands every morning when you leave the house. Are you pursuing to have holy hands? Are you pursuing holy hands in everything you do? In the way you work? In the way you browse the internet? In the way you will treat women and children. Paul is not content with simply giving generic principle of, of holy hands, but will give us some specific examples of what we should avoid as we seek to have holy hands. On one side, I have to be clear here, we should avoid everything that is unholy in order to have holy hands. And yet Paul will give two specific examples. We could talk about more stuff, but we're going to look at two specific examples. Anger and dispute. These are chosen for a number of reasons. It's possible that the false teachers in Ephesus caused tension that led some people to engage in anger and dispute. And Paul says, I want none of that. Spirituality, a true spirituality should put aside, should constantly seek to fight against a, ten a tendency to react with anger or to react in a spirit of dispute. Another reason could be that these are sins to which men especially tend to fall into. Anger and dispute. And Paul wants to address the men, especially on something that they seem to have a weaker spot. Third, anger and dispute might be chosen because when we understand the meaning of prayer, we will see how contradictory anger and dispute are to prayer. In praying, one of the crucial attitudes we exemplify and should seek is our dependence on God for His provisions. That's why we pray to Him. That's why we seek His face. Well, anger is the opposite of that. Anger is showing our provisions 
The way we react, the way we want to jump out of our seat and rage with anger and wanting to fix the problem or worse, fix the person. It's our provision that we seek when we get angry. Friends, anger is the opposite of deferring to God's plan. It's the opposite of deferring to, to, to wanting God and waiting for God to respond. Likewise, a person who likes to dispute is a person who likes to make a case for his position without humility, no matter what. Such a person simply seeks to be stubborn in his own views, hearing only what he wants to hear without trying to understand the other person's point of view or without trusting in God's control over a circumstance, even when things don't work out the same way he would like to. A person with a disputing spirit tends to look for disagreements and arguments with others as a way to promote his own agenda or as a way to, to tell people that he's there. And he needs to be given attention. This is so different than a prayerful spirit which depends on God and asks from God and, and waits for God to guide and show the way and provide. It's different than the wisdom that comes from above, which is first all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, as James would tell us. So by holding anger and a disputing attitude in us, while we pretend we're spiritual people who pray, we are actually showing that we're missing the meaning and purpose of prayer in the first place. Men, let me ask you, are you pursuing a heart that is free from the enslavement of anger? Most men struggle with anger, either at work or in dealing with family members. And since, since anger is such a common problem, oftentimes men are just excusing it. Oh, that's just the way I am. No... A better, more biblical answer would be, no, that's a sinful nature in you. That's not just the way you are. That's the sin that's controlling your life. Friends, are we bringing into our prayer life hands that have been cleansed from a desire to dispute and always prove ourselves to be right? Are we bringing into our prayer lives hands that have been uh, this, cleansed from anger? Men, think with me for a moment. When you argue with your wife, notice I said when. When you argue, when you have a dispute with your wife, do you always have to be right? Or always have the last word? Some men wrongly think that that's what it means for the woman to submit. And as we will see next week, that is not at all what it means. Men, stop excusing your lack of temper or weakness of falling into anger and dispute. And then pretend that we come to church together on Sundays, we worship God, we have a very emotional experience, but throughout the week, we, we are dealing with dirty, angry, argumentative hands. God would have none of that. 
And Paul is teaching men, if you are to lift up hands in prayer, lift up, seek to lift up holy hands in prayer. Some of us may need to repent of trying to pose as spiritual while failing to deal squarely with these two specific dangers. But some of us may not struggle with these two behaviors. Yet there are other unholy activities that control your life and your prayer life seems to have no effect on them. And yet we try to impress ourselves and others about whatever issue you have in your life that is keeping you away from praying with holy hands. Friend, I pray that, that you would take heart. And if there's something that is unholy that you know about, that you have put the arms down, you have, you have left the battle, and you just are excusing yourself now that this is just a thing you're going to struggle with until you get to the grave. Let me encourage you, the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, has the ability to break anything. If it had the power to bring Jesus from the dead, it can break the pattern of your sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel has that kind of power? If so, we will pray with an ongoing desire for God to cleanse us so that indeed we bring God holy hands in prayer. Friend, if there's something you are struggling with that you just don't know how to get rid of and you've been struggling with and nobody knows and you would like somebody else to, to come alongside and help you, come and talk to me or one of the deacons of this church. We would love to be there for you. We'd love to pray with you. We would love to keep you accountable. We would love to support you in your endeavor to seek God with clean hands. Friend, after dressing men in the quality of their spiritual life, not just in the activity of their spiritual life, Paul will turn his attention to the ladies. And now we will look at getting down with her stuff. If there are some things for men that, we, that Paul addressed, specifically anger and dispute, or anger and an argumentative spirit, the two issues Paul will address for women are modesty and submissiveness. Now, I may have just lost some of the ladies in this congregation. At the outset, I want to say one thing, ladies. By these instructions, God neither wants to make your life boring nor miserable. This is the foundational point that we're going to start from. Actually, quite the opposite. God desires that how you express yourself, whether that would be through clothing or through your, the way you relate to men, would be a display of true worship of God, our Creator and Redeemer. Now, today we'll only deal with the subject of modesty because I want to make sure we explain it well so that we may not be misunderstood. Men... It is not time for you to check out because there's something valuable for you also to take from this instruction. So stay tuned in. Let's look at the call to pursue modesty. Look at verse 9. I want, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Friends, in this verse, we have a, in these two verses, we have a major principle, 
the principle of modesty. Then we have concrete instructions on how that principle was to live out. And finally, we have the motivation for modesty. As we look at each of these, I would like to start with a motivation for modesty first. Because if we don't understand the motivation for modesty, we may miss the whole thing about it. Why is modesty such a big deal in God's sight? We may understand why anger is a big deal in God's sight, especially for men. They really need it. But modesty? You mean clothing? Why does God care about the way you dress? Really? Isn't that legalistic? Friends, apparently, modesty is a big deal in God's eyes because he gave some specific examples. And he gave the principle and then he gave the, the motivation behind it. The motivation for modesty, first of all, is given to us in these words. Look in the verse. Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. In other words, modesty should be a reflection of our worship of God. Modesty is a result of a heart that worships God. Modesty is an outflow of worship. A heart which is not submissive to God in worship cannot put up with modesty. Cannot put up with listening about modesty. Cannot try to live modestly. They just can't. Friends, modesty is a matter of the heart before it's a matter of clothing. Can I say that again? Modesty is a matter of the heart before it's a matter of clothing. So if you're visiting us this morning and... and and God is still a strange concept to you? Or church stuff has simply not been your thing lately? I want to make sure you understand, first and foremost, the meaning of worshiping God. Because if we don't get this point, if you don't get this point, anything we'll talk about modesty will make no sense or will communicate the wrong thing altogether. Friends, worshiping God, to worship God does not mean that you show up to church once in a while or even regularly. Worshiping God has to do with acknowledging that He is our Creator. He made us. He made us to belong to Him, and we made, He made us to reflect His image and His glory. We were made for God. God was not made for us. Yet despite this beautiful design that, and, and, and purpose that God gave us, we blew it up. We rebelled against God. We prefer to, to follow our own desires, our own instructions, instead of following God's design. And therefore, rightly so, we triggered God's wrath against us. We triggered God's condemnation against us. We triggered guilt and punishment. And therefore, we're born into this world with the status of being enemies of God. 
But that's not it. That's not where it stops. God loved us despite our rebellion. He loved us so much that he sent Christ Jesus to live a perfect life, a life that you and I could never live on our own. And yet he died on the cross to pay as a substitute for the guilt that we have triggered upon us. He died on the cross to advert the wrath of God against our sin so that we might be brought back into God's family, into a right relationship with God, so that we may be able to serve God just as God intended from the very beginning. And all those who repent of their sins and believe that Christ paid fully the full price of redemption, the full price of, of the penalty of our sins, those who believe that and return from their sin, they do begin a new life, a new nature that is willingly and joyfully wanting to serve God all the time. In our sinfulness, we cannot do that at all. But when God restores that new nature, that new heart in us, we now have cravings that before we would not re recognize. It's like, friends, it's not a good example, but it's still a, a decent example. It's like a pregnant woman. When a new life is being formed in her, she starts having cravings for things she did not have before. And there is a sense in which that's what happens when God gives us a new life. We start having desires that are our own we could never develop or acquire. Worshiping God is, is this desire to make everything of God, to make everything for the glory of God, to display his nature, to display his character, and to display the light that he is. Friends, that's the meaning of worshiping God. It is a willful and joyful submission to God's rule over our lives once again. It was that rule that we failed and blew up in the garden. And when God brings a new life to us, that rule is restored once again. That's the meaning of worshiping God. And if you're here this morning, my friend, and again, God is not a big deal to you or church stuff has not been a big thing lately in your life, I encourage you, I plead with you, if you're just hearing these words, this gospel, this good news, that by repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus and believing that he did pay that guilt, you too can enter into a right relationship with God. This is not your work. This is God's work in your life. But he calls you to respond. He calls you to surrender your life. And if you'd like to know more about this, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. For those of us who profess to worship God, for those of us who profess that these things have happened in our lives, for those of us who call ourselves Christians and are true Christians, Paul has something to say about the way we clothe, about the way we dress. I want to make sure that we understand what modesty is. Modesty has, is nothing more than worship dressed up. Modesty is nothing more than our submission to God expressed in clothing. Modesty is our submission to God expressed in clothing. A woman who worships God will be careful 
about how she dresses because whatever she worships will influence her choices of clothing. Some of you may be puzzled by the connection between modesty and worship. So let's unpack the principle of modesty. What is modesty in the first place? Well, Paul says, Paul gives some very specific instructions. Dress modestly with decency and propriety. Now, the ESV translates this as women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. In other, in other words, modesty is not just cheap clothing. Modesty is not the idea that you don't have to care for yourself, how you look. You should care how you look. You should want to wear respectable clothing. And Paul defines respectable clothing by the words, with modesty and self-control. Now, ladies, please do not think that you got the short end of the stick in this deal. Here's why. Paul was, will use this word modestly, dress modestly, will use the same word again in chapter 3 when he describes the qualifications for an elder. Only in chapter 3, it's translated as respectable. Because in the Greek language, the word for respectable can also mean modestly. The word, in other words, modesty is not just for women. It's for men also. It's for godly leaders, godly male leaders who lead the church. Modesty is a public display of what we truly worship. And that's why it's not limited only to women. Now we may still ask, how does that modesty express itself? Paul gives specific instructions. Look at verse 9 not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds. Now, in ancient world, braiding one's hair was a very elaborate and time-consuming process. It was often viewed either as a symbol of abundance and wealth or of abundance of time. You just didn't have anything better to do with your time. Or it was also viewed as a characteristic of temple prostitutes. So temple prostitutes would, would be very deliberate about the way they would adorn themselves with extravagant clothing. It invited up and promoted a culture of sensuality, and Ephesus was a major center for such sensual activity. Likewise, the presence of gold, pearls, or expensive clothing pointed to the extravagant lifestyle of people in the ancient world. Now, friends, it's not simply that having braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing uh, are sinful in and of themselves. There's nothing inherently sinful in gold or pearls. After all, there'll be lots of it in heaven. And yet... What is sinful is the association that such an attire makes with the values of this world. Our choices of clothing or hairstyle may often be done with a motivation to associate ourselves with a sinful, worldly culture around us. And that is a problem. C.J. Mahaney, pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and author of a book entitled Humility, a book which we have here on our um, bookstall, said the following, defines modesty as humility expressed in dress. 
Modesty is humility expressed in dress. He says that modesty is the avoidance of clothing that is extravagant, showy, revealing, or sexually enticing. So to dress in an immodest way is a display of what is truly happening in our hearts. Instead of self-control and God-oriented worship, there is me worship. There is sensuality worship or flat out a rebellious spirit. Friends, the way we dress makes visible the invisible fabric of our hearts. The way we dress makes visible the invisible fabric of our hearts. So ladies, what statement do your clothes make about who you truly worship? When you shop for clothes, do you seek to practice modesty and self-control? Do you take God to the mall with you? When you dress, are you motivated by a desire to worship God or rather by a desire to express yourself? The alternative to extravagant or sensual or rebellious clothing is given by Paul when he says, but adorning oneself with good deeds. Now, clearly Paul here is speaking not about physical clothing, but about acts of kindness and mercy. Uh, these are not clothing in the proper sense of the word. Uh, and this shows once again that Paul is not against clothing. He's not against respectable, proper clothing. He's against making choices about our dress in conformity with the sinful values of our world. Instead of being consumed by how we look, Paul says, ladies, be consumed with how you serve by doing good deeds and by serving others. So rather than making always an appointment, a regular appointment to check out certain shops and beauty shops, have you ever thought of putting an appointment to check out certain service opportunities on a weekly or monthly basis? Are you more intentional about the way you appear than about the way you serve? These are some diagnosis questions for our hearts. Now friends, careful attention here. We do not acquire godliness by dressing in a certain way. Our salvation is purchased by the blood of Christ through faith and repentance. And our, modestly, our modesty is simply a reflection of a heart that has been submitted and transformed by God's grace and is now freed from the slavery to self-affirmation and is free to serve others instead. Now, the women of our society often dress immodestly for the sake of seducing men. I doubt that such motivations are blatantly present among women who profess Christ. Instead, in many churches, immodesty is happening because of sheer ignorance on the part of the women. They have little or no idea of the battle that is going on in men's minds. Pastor C.J. Mahaney uh, asked men in his church to write about the importance of modesty in their lives and why they thought modesty should be pursued. And they got tons of letters for different men in the congregation, and even from some women as well. Here's one testimony I would like to read for you. One Christian brother writing about the importance of modesty to his Christian sisters. Dear sisters in Christ, I am sure I speak for the overwhelming majority of the brothers in our church when I say that each and every day is a battle. A battle against sexual immorality, masturbation, internet pornography, and lustful fantasies. Every day I'm reminded 
that this world is no friend of mine, nor is it an aid to me in the pursuit of righteousness. As I walk through the city, especially now that the weather has become warmer, I am tempted by this Irene song of lust that caused me to forsake the living God and drink from the broken cisterns that can hold no water on a bad day. And I have more of them I care to remember. I give in to my lustful desires. On a good day, when I see a woman who is immodestly dressed, I cry out to the Lord for the grace to keep covenant with my eyes and quickly avert my gaze. Yes, I've often lamented how many times I've looked away only to find another immodestly dressed woman in view. And so I've cried out again and looked away only to find that there is no safe place to look at all. You cannot imagine how weary and frustrating this is. Putting to death the second glance at an immodestly dressed woman is a tremendous challenge because such temptations do not normally have to be sought out. And for the few hours a week, I'm among you. Please know that by your modesty, you instruct your brothers in Christ that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We will not be taught this lesson by the world. Despite our best efforts at fighting lust, we need your help. Be billboards and advertisements for modesty and teach your brothers in Christ that this is truly desirable. For those of you among us that engage in this ministry, thank you immensely, your brother in Christ. What a sincere and practical plea from a Christian man, from a Christian young man, to women to pursue modesty. Friends, in the atrium, we put copies of a packet with these testimonies for you to take home and read. I've only done one of them. But I encourage you to read, both men and women, the importance of modesty. Friends, ladies, motivation, the motivation for your modesty is rooted in the worship of God. But let your modesty lead you to focus on good deeds and on serving others, especially the men, by not making it more difficult for them to fight against lust. It is one of the most important services you could offer to them. Ladies, let me also speak to you briefly. When someone comes and shares with you about modesty, would you commit to have a humble heart, willing to listen, and not justify yourself? Actually, ladies, you should not trust your own judgments on modesty. I encourage you, if you're married, ask your husband what he thinks about your modesty. If you're a single woman, ask other godly ladies what they think about your engagement and your modesty. Would you be open, young girls, would you be open to talk to your dad and have them check you out before you leave the house? If you truly desire worship and modesty in your heart, why not? If modesty starts with the heart, and if modesty is truly there in your heart, 
Why not ask others to help you make sure that you are reflecting modesty? We always tend to be more relaxed about our own clothing and more rigid about someone else's. As a result of the experiment that C.J. Mahaney did in his church, he asked his wife and daughters to write a guide with some very specific points about modesty. Uh, that guide should not be read by single men. It's only for women, for husbands, or for fathers. We actually made a copy of that guide out in the atrium. You can go and check it out. Get it for yourself. But we want to give specific instructions because most pastors have noticed this, or some pastors I've listened to said this. Modesty, the problem with modesty in most churches is not that women want to be immodest. They just don't know they are immodest. So dealing with the ignorance factor and educating and, and thinking through these issues. Now, friends, let me just be careful about one last thing, application thing for our church. When you invite your lost friend to come to church with you, most likely she may come dressed immodestly. And that is okay. People without Christ have no foundation for living a modest life. And we should not expect them to do otherwise. Or we should not try to come to them and say, why are you coming dressed this way to church? That kind of self-righteous, judgmental attitude should be completely purged out. We should be extra careful and go out of our way to make sure that immodestly dressed visitors will feel very welcome in our midst. We pursue modesty ourselves because we worship God. But visitors, they, we don't know what's happening with them. We need to make sure they feel welcomed. We should be cautious not to develop a self-righteous and judgmental attitude toward people who are immodestly dressed or toward those who may be just new converts and they just did not get to hear about the importance of this issue yet. Have patience with them. Graciously instruct them. Instruct them, but graciously and have patience. Friends, please understand, the Bible is not against seeking to take good care of ourselves. Quite the contrary, the book of Revelation gives us a wonderful picture of the bride of Christ who will be beautifully adorned to meet her groom. Yet the Bible calls that biblical adornments come not from what this world gives us, but what from, from what Christ gives us. So seek to dress in such a way that you do not draw attention to yourself or serve your self-image, but display humility and service to others as a way of worshiping God. Friends, I want to leave you with one last thought. All of this, the instructions to men and the instructions to women, are given after Paul described the gospel in the first seven verses. All of this makes sense only if you understand the gospel. It's only in light of the cross that we can pursue God with holy hands. It's only in light of the cross that we can dress modestly and seek modesty as a virtue and as a beauty that God has given us. I pray, dear friends, that as, as a result of this sermon, that men and women at Park Hills Baptist Church would start pursuing these instructions, not grudgingly, but joyfully. Because in each of them, we have an opportunity to reflect God's grand story of redemption. May God work in us His grace. Amen.